We are in part four of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're in chapter six. And in a moment, we're going to pick up with verse 19. But by way of review, just for a moment, not necessarily what we did last week, but just a review of the sermon itself. You will remember that we have said it's the longest recorded discourse by the Lord. It's chapter five, six, and seven in the book of Matthew. And Matthew deals with it a little bit more than anyone else does, any of the other gospel writers. But you know, surrounding 9-11 and surrounding a lot of things that are going on in our country, we're, we're all more conscious, I think, now of our declaration of independence and how wonderful it is that we live in a country in which we are free. We live in a country in which we have the opportunities that we do and that we live under the banner that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is the pursuit of happiness that we are looking at contrasted against life and liberty here in the Sermon on the Mount. But you know, true and lasting happiness can only be found in a person that is moral. In other words, it is the standard of character rather than the standard of living. And that's what this sermon does. It's meant to develop the inward character of an individual. I'm kind of surprised whenever I realize that this sermon begins with a message of hope and happiness when he talks about the Beatitudes and when he talks about the things that, that he talks about, there's really no doom in this discourse at all. And when you stop and you think about it, the poor are already doomed. What they're looking for, they're looking for the rainbow at the end of the storm. They're looking for the rising of, of the sun for a new day. And we must realize, though, when we look at the situation that we are in, that happiness does not reside in the possessions that we have. It's not characterized by our intellectual or social or financial position, but the wealth of an inner life and the ability to, first of all, take care of yourself and then take care of other individuals. And character, character is the secret of happiness for both individuals and for societies. And the Lord lays all of the groundwork, not only for the church. I understand that a lot of what he does here will be laying the groundwork for the gospel of Christ and the law of Christ and those things which will guide the church. But he's also looking at the kind of man that man ought to be. And, you know, when we discuss the whole idea of righteousness, it was in reality uh, an individual that has the qualities that God would prefer. And Ray, I'll let you uh, maybe catch up just a little bit, and then uh, we'll start on verse 19. And you can start on 19 if you want to here in a minute. Okay. Uh, I love what you were saying about character. You know, when you, when you study the Sermon on the Mount, it, it's almost like you're getting uh, – not just a preview, but I mean a, a very thorough explanation of how the Lord was going to approach the crowds of people. Now, obviously, as he moved through his ministry, 
he would gradually begin to teach more about his need to die upon the cross in order to procure salvation for man that he came to seek and save that which is lost. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a very adept picture of what he expects men to think and do and to be, and women now. And in this picture, we learn, you can sum it up very simply, uh, to love God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, and love your fellow man. And one of the great points of that is not just your fellow man, but all men and women, everyone, uh, people that we deem to be the worst sinners. And I have seen too many people, and, and I've watched churches do this, first of all, in reference to us, because we teach the Bible so, well, I believe to be accurately and in detail. They would say, well, you're, you're, you're nothing but a bunch of law keepers. You all are Pharisees. Well, no. No, matter of fact, if you go to Matthew 23, the same Jesus that gave this, he told those folks, no, you follow what they say about the law if they're teaching the truth about it. But, but what I want to say is people will accuse us of being Pharisees because we teach the law. But then we will act like Pharisees, not because we teach the law, but because we don't love God like we should, or we don't love our fellow man like we should. And it shows in, well, really, all of these elements that he's given us on how to behave. And uh, I think that when we study this and we realize, I think as time goes on, at least in the first part of the Lord's ministry, that his preaching and teaching will involve these principles over and over and over and over, even no matter what the context or the circumstance is, there will be some of this in there. And I, I thought one time, where did the Lord get his sermons? Well, obviously, he quotes a lot from the Old Testament, and even some here he did. But in Matthew Matthew 5, he quoted in order to correct the, the maybe the, the, the lack of depth in teaching on what was meant there and destroy the traditions that men had piled on top of the revelation. But also, the Lord could, as the Son of God, he could, through his own connection to the Father, and I don't believe he originated his own ideas, but I think that the Father gave him the idea, showed him what he wanted said. So as a prophet, he was delivering the, this material. And then I believe the Lord looked at the everyday needs of man. He looked at the way we lived. He looked at what we were going through, and he would pull lessons out of that. So these three avenues, the, the, the previous revelation, his revelation, and then the life needs of man, he, he addressed also all of this. And we see a composite of it all in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we move now into chapter 7, we suddenly realize that the heart that has the mind of Christ, this person in the mind of Christ has to understand his relationship to the material world. Now, we segue now into verse 19 of chapter 6. Do not lay up or store up for yourselves treasures, which means stores, on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal. Well, let me, let me stop for just a minute. Many people today identify themselves as being happy, at peace, and secure by how much money they've been able to put away in the bank. Many churches do the same thing. And I think one of the problems that we have is that 
Jesus established for us that we cannot be so married to our material possessions that it stops us from doing the spiritual work that needs to be done. I think it's kind of strange. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there they were hedged around, protected, safe. And guess who still got there? Well, Satan did. He still got there. I think sometimes we build our houses and establish our security, retreat to the house and think, I'm safe. The devil walks right in and sits down with us. The only way that we're ever going to be able to really accomplish what God wants us to do is to have an active life of service. He said, lay up that, again, it's the idea of storing up. Matter of fact, that's really the root word, thesarizo, is a word we get thesaurus from. And what a thesaurus is, it's a book that's a collection of words. Well, a thesario is a collection. And he's saying, you don't need just to collect up things that moth and rust can destroy or thieves can steal, but you need to have a collection of treasures in heaven. Man, what would that look like, Lloyd? What, what, what would that look like? Would, would it be a scrapbook, a, a, a picture of you hugging a child that's crying, a picture of you holding a, an old woman that, that can't stand up and is about to fall, a picture of you uh, teaching Jesus to a lost sinner, a picture of you standing up in front of a group of people and teaching the gospel to encourage and edify and, and build up the church, a picture of you in a prison, you know, visiting with the inmates and, and sharing about Christ or going to a hospital. Saying is, what is that collection? What is that treasure? Well, what, part, what, part, is, part of ahead, it also is is what we do on a daily basis. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know how you. Uh, go about, you know, putting your sermons together. I try very earlier in the week to come up with an idea, and normally I will try to tailor that topic or that idea to something that's uh, something that's needed, you know, in my community or in the congregation uh, or a family or what have you. We've got a family that is suffering through uh, this deadly illness, and uh, you know, this last Sunday I had a lesson on God helps in times of trouble. And so the collection that we have is the Word, and we digest that Word. We treasure that Word. We build up an inventory of that Word. And that's what I will do at the first of the week. I will try to come up with an idea or a theme or a uh, projection of what I want to do. And then I'll begin to go into my library of my mind and my memory of Scripture that I have studied. I'm going to start working with uh, some young men the, on the uh, points and, and training of becoming a preacher. And the best thing that I can tell them is concentrated Bible study. Know the context. Know what happened prior to what you're reading. Know what happened uh, after what you're reading. Understand the words that are used and everything, because the more knowledge that we have of the Bible, that's the treasure, that's the inventory, but it doesn't exclude the things then that it makes us do, that it prompts us to do, because you know we see those needs, and you pointed all of those out. Uh, it's it's in quite a contrast 
than uh, going to Walmart or wherever, you know, going to the mall and just buying up a bunch of stuff. And a lot of people, you know, you've seen people that just get depressed. And you know what they say, Ray? I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to buy myself something, you know. Well, it really doesn't remedy the problem. But a lot of people think that the key to real happiness is having something new, buying something, getting something, having all these treasures. But the Lord said, moth and rust. You know, I, Raina and I, I helped her clean her little building out because I redone it. And there's all kind of stuff in there. And when you stop and you look at it, it was stuff that we just couldn't live without. We just had to go and get it, you know. And there it is in the building. And uh, Raina said, you think we can sell this? I said, I don't think nobody would have it. Just throw it away, you know. Well, that's what the Lord is saying. He's saying all of these things that today you think I can't live without them, a year or two down the road, you're going to say, nobody would want that. And you're, gonna, you're just going to throw it in the trash. If you don't, moth and rust and corruption is, is going to eat away at it, and it's not going to have any value at all. But it's hard for us to learn that lesson, isn't it, Ray? It certainly is. People talk about the eye of ambition. And uh, I, I see young people make that terrible mistake. They go out and overload themselves, buy too much, and barely can pay for it. They've been blessed. Can't, they can't do anything with their families. They can't do anything with the church. They they can't. They just can't really do anything good except pay for a big chunk of stuff they're going to leave behind. Well, one time I heard a story that I thought illustrated materialism and honor. And by the way, do you remember Proverbs 3, verse 9? Honor the Lord with your possessions, mm -hmm. with the first fruits of your increase. Well, I want to say this. This story is so beautiful. This little boy was playing. He was poor. His family had very little. This other little boy rode up on a big, fancy, shiny, brand new, you know, tricked out bicycle, scooted up, throwed gravels on the little boy. And he sat there and laughed at that poor little boy. And he said, well, thank my bike. Little boy got up. He was in awe. He said, it's beautiful. It is so beautiful. And that he said, where did you get it? And that rich boy, he said, he said, well, my brother gave it to me. He bought it and gave it to me. And, and then he looked at it, and he wanted to rub it a little bit into that poor little boy's face, you know. So he said, don't you wish you had a bike like this? That little boy said, no. He said, but I know, but you know what I wish? He said, what? He said, I wish I could be like your big brother and give my little brother one. No. You see the difference? There's a great big difference. No doubt about it. And, uh, you know, I liked what you said because the Lord uh, did in his preparation, I'm sure. Of course, he's the son of God. He is the creator of everything that we know, according to Hebrews and other places. But also, he was a student of people. He looked at people. He saw their uh, their weaknesses. He saw their problems. And, you know, when you can do that, you're going to be able to come up with ideas and solutions. But not only that, uh, some people are really going to be drawn to you as they were. I mean, look at the crowds that he drew on these things. Now, he would say things that... Uh, uh, you know, would would turn a lot of people off. And I was just thinking, uh, as I was looking at my Bible, of course, I've I've written so many notes and I can hardly read it anymore. But there are key verses in each one of these chapters. In the in chapter five, the first one that we dealt with, I told you then when we were doing that, 
uh, verse 20 is the key verse. I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. And what they did was they made religion mechanical. Uh, everything, as you said there a while ago, it was just each jot and tittle of the law. And that was about it. But here in chapter 6, Ray, a key verse to me is verse 21, which we haven't read yet. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what is it that makes you get up in the morning? That's your treasure. That's where your heart is at. But what is it? And once we answer that question ourselves, uh, we're going to find out what kind of people that we are. And, you know, that's, that's just a real simple test that anyone without a great education, uh, someone that uh, is illiterate or, as the world or society would say, they're ignorant, you can understand that. What makes you get up in the morning? What's on your mind when you get up in the morning? Is it to go out here and make a bunch of money and buy a bunch of stuff? Or is it to make the best of that day? Because wherever your treasure is, whatever is in your heart and in your eye when you first open them in the morning, that's where your heart's at. Go ahead, Ray. Well, you know, this kind of bleeds over into verses 22 through 24, where he said, the lamp of the body is the eye. Now, sometimes when I'm preaching, I, of course, I'm always watching the faces of the audience. And you can talk about certain things. You know, you mentioned, well, brother so-and-so got a brand new car. And the eyes light up. Everybody, oh, wow, wow, where's it at? What's it look like? And then there's other things you can bring up from Scripture. You know, where the Bible says, let him that stole steal no longer, but rather let him work with his hands the thing that is good so that he may have to share with others. I don't see quite as many eyes lighting up when I read that verse. You know? <laughs> well, there's an obligation tied to that. Well, that's the point. That means part of what this I've laid aside, I've got to be able to, to share it. Well, if, if you have an eye of ambition, I'm going to tell you something. If it's only for the material things, the lamp of your eye is going to be not full of light, but full of darkness and selfishness. To be full of light means you're looking at Christ. He is the light of the world. And you're looking at what is good. He is the good one. And he's telling you, cup of cold water, visit, do, share, loan, lend, forgive. These are all words that, that fight against our old selfish nature. And, if, and I'm not saying that we have that nature because we're born that way. I'm saying that we develop that nature through the habitual long use of just being self-centered. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You know, if you're a generous, single-minded, spiritually-minded person who loves Jesus Christ, you're my kind of person. I want to be around you. I want to share with you. I, 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 I want to stand beside you. I think that's what, that's what took care of a lot of people. Now, don't get me wrong. The Lord could feed thousands with very little. Then turn around and say, no, you're not getting the point. This is not a handout. This is not about me just giving you food so you'll wander around like the children of Israel thinking about Egypt, you know. This is, this is about you seeing miracles that confirm my identity to you. But I think later on we're going to see where uh, some men claim miracles and it proved nothing about them. 
I'll be blunt with you. Miracles work in the hands of the common man proves nothing, really. But miracles work from the hand of the Lord proves tremendous amount of information about why we should listen to him. And if a man that could raise the dead tells me to share with other people and help other people, then I think that's what I would do. Yeah, he he has uh, legitimized, you know, himself and his word. Yeah. But, Amen. you know, Ray, when, when you look at verse 22 there and 23, uh, as you pointed out, doesn't it ground us a little bit when we visit the hospital and we see the suffering sick and the family doesn't it ground us and and make us make our heart just a little bit different make what we think about that day a little bit more precious when we have to either do a funeral or when we attend a funeral those things show us the 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 folly of this life, really, and Solomon called it the vanity. He says it's like trying to grasp the air, you know, just trying to catch a handful of wind. When you open up your hand, you don't have anything. And so much of what we do in the employ of this life is, uh, you know, people are just, just getting up. Well, you know, the psalmist said this, you, you get up early and you go to bed late. But he said, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And you can see people that that have their alarm set up and they're up at the crack of dawn and they work till work their fingers to the bone, you know, until uh, way after dark. Uh, but what are they accomplishing? I'm not saying it's wrong to work. I mean, in fact, if you don't work, the Bible says you ought not eat. So working is a wholesome thing, but it cannot control everything that we think about. Uh, we need to work with a view, as you said there a while ago. Work with your hands where you might have the wherewithal to help those that are in need and to take care of yourself, not you know, put yourself as a burden on someone else or on society. And that is, you know, where your your treasure is. That is the lamp that, that shines in you. And sometimes we need to see the darker side of life because it it to me it draws us closer to God. Don't you think that? Don't you think Pointer we have to to sit and talk with someone that is that is ill and is suffering and in pain, that it 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 humbles us, doesn't it? It certainly does. You know, uh, my little old house here several years ago, it needed a roof, and Brother Dwayne Williams said, "I'll help you put a roof on." Brother Clyde Kerr came over, and we put a metal roof on this little old house, and Dwayne knew what he was doing. I just was strong enough to get up there and, and help. But they helped me get that roof on and cover my house. Okay. Back just a little while ago, Dwayne caught COVID, and he was going down fast. And the last day of his life, he he called and or told the nurses that, that he wanted to talk to me. So I went up to the hospital, and they said, you can talk to him, but you're going to have to suit up because he had COVID. So I put all the masks and the gowns and everything on. They, they asked me a question. They said, are you afraid? I said, no. And I wasn't. Because I'm going to tell you something. I wanted to be with Dwayne. Now, here, here's what happened that day. You're right. I sat there and watched this man that, that I'd been around for years, literally drawing his last breath. They were getting slower. And 
I said a prayer. And I was touching him. And I said a prayer. And at the end of the prayer, he raised up and said, Amen. That was the last words I ever heard him speak. Now, but, will I ever forget that? No. No, and it it grounds you. It makes you appreciate life. Absolutely. It makes you appreciate good friends that you have. But and it and it it made me think how important the word amen is too. Well, true. Let, let me say let me let me say something. He did what he did on that roof that day because that's what he could do. Right. And he shared his time and helped me out tremendously. Because I didn't make a lot of money, and that really helped me. But when we shared that moment together, that prayer moment together, now he knew I'm not going to be here much longer. And all I can do is say this. But he said it. He didn't let me say it. Yeah. He said it. And, and, and yes, every one of those moments, I can look back over my life, and I, I was thinking about a sermon. You were talking about sermons. I, I'll share this with you. You probably can come up with one better than I can. But I got to thinking, I want to work up a sermon sometime, and I want to entitle it, The Last Thought. What will my last thoughts be? Yeah. And what do I want them to be? And have I lived in such a way as to accomplish the, the right and the ability to think the thoughts that I want to think? when I leave this earth. And I just love it. He said, Amen. <laughs> what you and I have been talking about, uh, anecdotal things that, that we've brought into this as well, is really what the Lord was trying to accomplish. Amen. Here. And, Amen. I mean, that, that's what, what would the world be like if everybody thought like that? We don't even think like that all the time. I mean, no. we, we have to be brought down. We have to be humbled. There are times whenever everything is going good, and I remember what uh, the book of Hosea said. He said Israel was filled. In other words, they had everything they needed, and Israel forgot God. And we cannot live with, you know, 100% prosperity. We will walk away from God. Sometimes we need to be brought down. We need to be humbled. And we do that by, by sharing and seeing. But wouldn't it be a great world if uh, everybody thought that way and if everybody at least once a week could reach this kind of mode? But then verse 24 says, there's one thing that holds us back from doing that. And that is we're trying to serve two masters. We're trying to prepare for heaven, but we want to live in this world and we don't want to leave it. And we're trying to serve God, but we'll let the devil in the house every once in a while, you know. And uh, there was a man told me one time, he said, if you let the devil ride with you long enough, it won't be very long till he'll be driving, you know. And that's the truth, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Uh, and so now then he's going to get into a discourse of through the end of the chapter here of really some of the things that we worry about that are futile to worry about, like what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we're going to sleep, all of those kind of things on a daily basis. You know, the Old Testament writer said, I've been old and I've been young. I've never seen the Lord's. Uh, people forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. 
And I believe that. I believe that that God, in some way, will take care of our needs. Now, I said needs. I didn't say wants. But so many times we live our life, and I think that that's what mammon is. It's, it's uh, the material, the physical things. Am I right on that? Oh, you are. Matter of fact, the word mammon, if you go back in some of the Aramaic concepts of it, they, there was actually a god that they worshipped. Uh, some of them did, called mammon, who was the god of material riches. And uh, over a period of time, just like words in our, our language, it, it became more generalized. And the word mammon, therefore, became riches. But, but it was more than just riches. It was the mindset, trusting in riches, counting on riches. You know, uh, matter of fact, it was like worshiping that. But now he's going to point out that what happens, there's another God that steps into place. Now, now listen closely, the God of worry. Because when all your mind is on your money, your portfolio, your investments, your bank accounts, inflation and, and interest rates, next thing you know, you're worried sick. You're just worried about your, your excess, your, your profit. And then, then suddenly the worry goes, well, what if I don't have this? What if I don't have that? Now, I will say this, though, Lloyd. There's a great number of people right now in this country who are barely making it. They are barely making it. There are people that are starving to death. I mean, hungry in the streets. There are people that, that uh, one lady said this. Everybody said there's plenty of jobs. She said, I got three of them, and I still can't help <laughs> pay my rent. <laughs> I know. But you know what? Yeah. Uh, but uh, inflation is outstretching wages, you know. And uh, there are people that want to tell you differently. But, uh, you know, you can't convince me of what I see and what I'm experiencing. And we're all experiencing that, you know. Money just doesn't go far enough. <clears throat> I was talking to a lady this well, morning at the hospital, and she was talking about somewhere that she had taken her kids over uh, the weekend. And uh, on Saturday, some theme park or something, other, she said, you know what I gave for a hot dog? I asked her, I said, y'all have a good time? She said, well, the kids had a good time, but everything was so expensive. She said, I gave $6 for a hot dog. I gave four, I gave $4 for a, a little bottled drink, you know. And I said, she said, everything is just so high. But, you know, Ray, and we, part of our job that we don't like to do is we counsel couples sometimes whenever they are having problems and whenever they're uh, at one another's throats. And most of the time, and you will probably agree with this. Most of the time, whenever a man and woman are at one another's throats, it's because of money problems. Money, money. Yep. It, it, you, it, right. <laughs> you know, where the money just doesn't go far enough. And maybe it's not either one of them's fault. Maybe it's both of them's fault. Or maybe it's just one of them's fault, you know. But you're right. I mean, the whole world is in anxiety right now. And, uh, you know, the uh, the American Standard uses word, therefore I say to you, do not be anxious. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a root word for anxiety, you know, being anxious, being worried, being just sick over money and over things. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, well you were saying good things. The average American household in the middle class right now is spending $700 more a month to make ends meet. I'm talking about to pay rent and buy food, such like that. 
uh, house payments than they did two years ago. Yeah. And income's not gone up. You know, people are not making $700 more a month than they were. So that money is coming out of, well, credit cards, bank accounts, savings, so forth. And I'm not, I'm not saying that because that I'm, I'm an economics major. That's not what I am. But I am going to say this. When he said, do not worry or be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, those people were in a lot worse shape than we are. Most of those people had one or two changes of clothes at the house, and they worked every day and got paid every day because they needed to buy food at the end of the day just to have a supper meal. That's what a denarius was, a day's labor. Yeah. For the, and we, we, we call people that barely make money a day laborer, you know, a day laborer. But what I wanted to say was this, too. Care, worry can create unfaithfulness, even as covetousness and prosperity can. Yeah. You remember there's one passage in Proverbs where he said, don't, don't give me too much lest I trust in my riches, but also give me enough so I won't be bitter in my soul. Yeah. And, and I've, I, I, it, it hurts me when I see parents that are simply trying to do right by their children who cannot even give them the basics. That, that is a sad state of affairs for, this, for a nation as prosperous as this nation when 1%, and I'm not trying to be a woke person at all, but 1% or 2% of the population owns the major thing. Now, I'm not saying dissolve it. I'm saying there should be a better way to pay people, and but they should work. There's part of your problem, too. Right. A lot of people have grown up under the welfare state. They don't want to work. You know, they, 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 they want a guaranteed basic income. And by the way, with AI going like it is, some, some of your economic people are pointing out that they can see a time when millions of jobs more will just be eliminated. And people will have to have some basic income in order to survive. Now, I'm saying all that because in the midst of a very changing world, it's going to get easier for us to be concerned yep. about, about food and clothing. And yet here the Lord is saying, what's he saying? Don't, in a, I think in hyperbolic speech, don't give thought to that, meaning excessive thought to that. Now, he gives a very good illustration. Look at the birds of the air. Well, hold on, hold on. Before before you go, get go into ahead, that, go ahead. L- let me transition into it, or let him transition into it, because the final sentence before verse 26, is not your life more than food Lord. and the body more than, than your clothing? And so he sets the stage right there, and he says, you know, make a comparison. Look at your life. Is that mo- not more than than uh, being able? Now, if Sailor had her druthers, uh, I said, you know, she had a, th- a thing at school where your favorite color, you know, and and uh, your favorite, uh, uh, what's your favorite doll's name and stuff like that. And they said, what's your favorite food? And she said, crab legs. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> and she's right. I mean, she can eat her weight in those. But a piece of bologna would do her, you know. Uh, rather than the expensive crab legs. And so that's the transition that he makes. Didn't mean to to interrupt again, but you've got to think about that. Is not life more than food, and is not the body more than clothing? Go. Well, you know, I think a lot of people, when they sit down at the table of life and they pick up the menu, 
the people without God, all they can think about, what am I going to eat, what am I going to drink, and what am I going to wear? That's all they live about. That's all they think about. What am I going to eat, what am I going to drink, and what am I going to wear? That life menu has to have God at the top of it because there is such a thing as the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eye. And Satan will tempt us, and if our thing is those kinds of things, he'll either tempt us with prosperity or poverty. And poverty is a terrible situation to be in, and prosperity can be as well. He goes on to say, look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap. Right now I'm thinking about some beautiful little old hummingbirds that fly up on our porch. And uh, just gorgeous little creatures. I'm thinking about the yellow chickadees, the blue, the little bluebirds that fly around out there, you know, the red cardinals, gorgeous animals, creatures. He said, they don't reap, they don't gather. Now, one thing they do at my house is we put feed out for them and yeah, we you're, put sugar water in. We you're feed feeding them. them. <laughs> they, they've trained us how to do that, you right. see. But your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? To who? To God. Well, the, yeah, to God. But you know, there's a lot of people today that they will value an animal more than they will a human. I believe that. Oh, I do. They'll value an animal more than will a human. But God says, I value you. Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. In other words, they're not doing all the intricate things to create this. But yet, at the same time, when I study what they what has happened, they have some of the most intricate structures built by God. Well, if God can do that for them, what can he do for me? No. He said, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Well, I, I'd like to know how he knew what Solomon wore. But he's Jesus, isn't he? Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> he's Jesus. So, you think about this. The light menu of people without God eat, drink, and wear. And one other thing I want to add to it, entertainment. Entertainment. Yep. A lot of people, I want to go to that concert. I want to do this. And that's all they think about. That's all they think about. Now, I'm not saying that having care, which is a godly sense of responsibility, versus an ungodly sense of responsibility, we need to have real honest care. But sometimes I think... We have worry masquerading as care. We have anxiety masquerading as faith. And we just don't see it. No. And we need to see it. Well, he makes a connection there at the end of verse 30. O ye of little faith. Because if, if this is my mindset right here, you remember, Ray, uh, you and I knew each other. We've known each other for a long time. And I guess uh, you... And your family was in the same shape that me and my family was. I mean, you just you struggle to uh, make ends meet and what have you. And we had three girls, and they were all in school. And there were a lot of families that were uh, above means, you know, of what we had. And they were that was when Nike first took off, you know. And everybody had those Nike shoes. Of course, all three of my girls wanted Nike shoes. Well, foot, I couldn't afford to buy one pair, much less three pair, you know. So Raina said, I'll tell you what we'll do. I'll go to the dollar store, and I'll buy three pairs of those uh, white tennis shoes, 
and uh, you can draw a little bit, and you just put that little Nike thing on there with the magic marker, and that's what I did. And all three of my girls thought they had Nike shoes. Now, everybody around them knew different, but they didn't, you know. They they, they said, well, I wish I'd have thought of that. <laughs> you didn't buy a pair, did you? <laughs> no. Yeah. No, but time went on, you know, things got a little easier, and, and some of that stuff was bought. But I remember one time, uh, the boys come in and the shoes cost two hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And Lloyd, I just thought that was horrible. Yeah. And my first car I ever bought cost twenty five. I gave a hundred for my first one, you know. And well, mine was twenty five, but it, but didn't have a transmission. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just bought a half a car then. You just bought a but fourth said, of a I, car. Yeah. I could have had eight pair. For what you all had, I could have bought eight of those cars. <laughs> yeah, I know. But. The Lord sums all of this up uh, toward the end with a statement that it's it's hard for us to put into into action, really, in our in our life. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And I had an English teacher, Miss Singleton. She was my favorite teacher out of every teacher that I ever had. And I had her in the seventh grade. And she just had a way of teaching to where that you could learn. And she taught us about conjunctions. And she said a conjunction is like where you have two cars of a train and they're hooked together by that little hook thing. You know, one of them's curving to the left, one of them's curving to the right. And, and they just they just latch in there. And she said, that's what a conjunction is. It ties this boxcar to this boxcar. Well, and is a conjunction. It ties what's in the first part of this uh, verse to what's in the second part. So let's break it down. And we will see what this conjunction does. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the first part. Now, what's it linked to? And all of these things will be added to you. Now, doesn't mean that you're going to get a pair of Nike shoes, but the things that you need, the food you need, the clothing that you need, the housing that you need, the warmth that you need, all of those things are going to be added to you. And and he goes one step further in saying, don't be anxious for tomorrow. Now, that's not a lack of preparation. I don't think that God wants us to have a lack of preparation. In fact, the Apostle Paul on more than one occasion would write a letter to a a certain congregation or city and say, I'm planning to come to you. That's looking toward the future. And so there's, there's not anything wrong with it. But what it is, is we want to pay interest on worry. You want to understand what I'm saying? We want to we want to grab the worry from tomorrow that's not even here, and we want to start paying on it today, and that that just doesn't work. You've got enough to worry about today. So he says, uh, "Be not anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself." In other words, you've got enough to worry about today. Don't worry about that, you know, uh, or don't look into the future and and pay interest on worry. But it's all a matter of, I, I go back to uh, verse 21, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And if you get up and if you trust God, you love God, you want to spend time with God's word, and then you want to do what God's word wants you to. And so 
you're going to visit around to people that are less fortunate than you. It, we don't have a lot of greed, a lot of time for greed and jealousy and things like that when, when our day is spent like that. Am I right, Ray? You're right. And I think the trust that that verse 33, seek first the kingdom. Now, notice all these things shall be added to you. I worked up a sermon one time on that verse, and I just remembered it. Um, and I, what I preached on is how does God add these things to you? And what I did is I went through the scriptures and showed how God profits us in this world. And number one, by strong work ethic. We go out and work. You've already brought that up, that if a man won't work, neither shall he eat. Number two, sometimes by an inheritance from family. That was that was one way that people received extra uh, monies as it works. Number three, uh, I remember I talked about sometimes when you, you hit a, a bad spell, illness, bad, you just have bills that you can't meet, good brethren step in and share with you and help you, you see. And a time or two, Lloyd, I've just gone to the mailbox and opened it up, and there'd be a letter in there with a check from some brother or sister way off from somewhere that said, I just wanted to help you out. Yep. You're doing and it would come at the most opportune time, you see. But it didn't take so, God by surprise. <laughs> no. It, it does no, us but, but, when, those, when those moments happen. Uh, and, you know, you were talking about people that live uh, day laborers. You know, there are a lot of people that right now are working paycheck to paycheck. And that's almost day to day, isn't it? It is. And so w what he's trying to say is that he will guarantee the opportunity for you to receive what you need. Now, now I, I want to be very careful. Your health, wealth, prosperity preachers will jump in on these verses and say, that verse means send me a bunch of money, that's your seed faith, and God will bless you in the future with a pile of money. No, that's not what he's saying here. Don't don't get into that. Uh, that You might as well be playing the lottery is to play that game. Yeah. But, but the bottom line is, when he said, don't worry, in other words, don't worship your anxiety. One man said, worry is paying interest on a note that you've not even made yet. Yep. That's crazy. You don't do that. But will will the present day have care? Yeah. Paul, the apostle Paul, he said, besides the daily care he had, what comes upon him, his care for the churches. Right. We are going to have care. Does God care for you? He cares for you. God cares. I care. We all care. Sometimes I do worry about people. I very seldom ever worry about financial things because I know they'll work out. But many times I worry about people who are not saved getting close to die. And I, I can get a little bit antsy about that, you know, sometimes. But he said, look, really is what he's saying is you can only take care of primarily what's in front of you. I asked a man one night last week in my meeting at Jamestown, he was sitting there. He's a widowed man, been widowed for six or seven years. And he looks a little sad. And I walked up to him. I said, brother, how you doing tonight? He said, I'm doing very well with what I've got to do with. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you, you were talking about that Paul said his, his care for, you know, the things that were going on in his personal life and also the care for the congregations and everything weight on his mind and and we care about people and but there's a difference between care 
and anxiousness or anxiety right. or worry. Uh, He's talking about concern, concern for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, care and concern are are legitimate things. God cares. God is concerned about things. Jesus cared. Jesus was concerned about things. Jesus never got anxious over anything. Jesus never had anxiety over things. He 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 dealt with what he had at the moment and what he faced at the moment. And that's really all that we can do. We just have to we just have to make the best out of whatever that day. You know what the psalmist say? This is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad therein. In other words, I'm gonna make the most out of this day that I can make. And whenever I do that, then I've really, you know, I've really fulfilled uh, chapter six here. I'm I'm not trying to do a righteousness just to be seen of of men, and I'm not trying to let the world dictate what kind of life that I have. I'm just I'm just living out my life with the Lord each day. Whatever He sends, it'll be fine with me. I'll find a way to get through it. You know. Uh, may eat crab legs today, may eat tuna fish tomorrow, you know. Amen. <laughs> but, but listen to this. There will be days when care comes at you a lot harder than it does other days. Yeah. But really what he's trying to get us to see is not paralyze ourselves uh, with analysis of worry. We remember First Peter 5. He said, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in your time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Yeah. But look, I think the Lord knows that human nature is to sometimes agonize over things, maybe because we can't see the end, and there's so much pressure upon us. But, but these things are a test of our faith. Will we succumb to worry and forget God? That's what I call worry and worship. Or will we say, no, I'll lay this at the Lord's feet and I'll trust him for the answers. And that's really what he's saying. And he's saying, when you do that, the Lord is going to add to you that you need. 